Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world, this is another episode of the Deep Dive with Ayal Shai and I'm joined today by Tamash Erdosh. Hi Tamash. Hi Ayal, how are you? I'm great, I'm great. Well, let's dive deep right into it. Um, what are you going to talk with me about? So I was thinking about talking uh, about a few topics, about travel, about the dark side of travel, about people's ability and specifically my ability to keep accumulating options in order to avoid committing on any particular one. Uh, moving physically between job roles, romantic relationships. We can talk a little bit about Myers-Briggs personality tests. Yeah, and I don't know, I would love to hear your experiences. I can share some of my experiences uh, as we struggle through uh, this journey called life. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm here for. And I hope that we can um, distill some interesting insights or ideas from our experiences and stories. So when you start talking about travel, even if we don't say it's the dark side of travel, when would be a, a good point on the timeline to start with your journey with your first travel? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I was very fortunate to travel a lot in my childhood. Uh, my parents took me with them on their travels. So as I was growing up and before even I was a teenager, we traveled a, a lot together. So it kind of became natural uh, to, to see different cultures and uh, to see different things in life. So I guess that was kind of my first exposure to travel, which then I tried to do uh, later on in my life as well. I also experienced different cultures in, in school. So uh, I went to an international school uh, starting fifth grade. And in school, I was exposed to different people, different cultures. As these were kids, you know, mostly of diplomats or multinational companies. But what was also interesting is I was exposed to their comings and goings, right? Like these kids stayed in school maybe for uh, two or three years four years and before their parents took on different jobs, different mission, and they were bouncing um, around the world. So we can start there if uh, that's interesting. Sure. Um, is that a point where you started contemplating like the nature of what it's like to, to travel from place to place? Or did you have any thoughts yourself about what it must feel like and yeah, have you had thoughts about starting to, to travel as a, as a means of changing something in your life? So this time was meaningful for me in two different ways. Um, one, in the, in the family setting, I just saw a very different dynamic play out between my family uh, while we were traveling and while we were at home. So 
it was different setting, different scenery, but interestingly was just the difference in our our lives and the way we behaved. That was that was also kind of remarkable. And what were so, the differences? So I know many people travel to get away uh, from their problems. So for example, there could be a lot of fighting at home. And then when people travel, it's always kind of tranquil and everyone is happy. But my family traveled, it was kind of the opposite. Uh, during each of our travels, there was conflict that was uh, surfacing uh, between my parents, between like family dynamics. So that was, that was interesting. So it makes me wonder if, if, if almost that was the truth coming out there. Um, and while we were at home, we were repressing our, our normal behavior because we're just busy doing what we need to do to, to live and conform to society and busy with jobs, et cetera. And then when we were traveling, that's when some of the, the real life could, could come out, even if it wasn't pretty. So it sounds like the time that is supposed to be your time off, time for enjoyment, and all that sounds like it would turn into something more stressful than usual rather than, rather than enhance your um, staying in this world. <laughs> yes, it was more stressful, but it was also more genuine. So maybe mm. travel is a means of, of, of getting closer to, to reality because when you can look at things um, without a pressure from, from job or, or other kind of pressures that you built up for yourself, you get to escape your cage and then you can see the thing the way things really are. Right. And I'm, I'm wondering, as a tour guy, like, were those travels organized trips or were they just basically like, let's rent a car and, and go on an adventure? Somewhere in between. They were not full adventures, but they were, um, they were mostly booked with hotels. And, you know, sometimes we would do like a city tour or something like this or go, or go with a guide. But mostly we just have a destination in place and, and we'd explore. There would be maybe a beach or a city and uh, we, we'd, we'd take a look around. So we were not driving. It wasn't a really vagabonding kind of travel, right? right. Uh, except with, with a few exceptions. Uh, it was mostly like, hey, let's check out Tokyo, for example. And then we were in, in Tokyo and then, okay, maybe one day we got a tour guide, but the rest were just kind of uh, going on our own. When you say... When you already mentioned uh, the dark side of it, and I'm seeing you then, I can imagine you as this uh, inquisitive kid who's going around and is pretty well-traveled. So you know a lot about different cultures and you like that. How does that develop into a, a habit as you grow up and, and what, kind of, what kind of motivation is behind travels in, later in life? Yeah, let, let's go back to, to school for a second. Let's talk about the, the other thing, mm -hmm. which is connected to what I was uh, saying before about the kids leaving every, every few years. Right. So in this international school, it was very difficult to build long-lasting relationships because everybody was bouncing around kids, but also, also teachers. In fact, I remember a presentation that was given to the entire school. All of us gathered in the school auditorium and I'm not sure it was a principal or the counselor, someone very important went up on stage and held this presentation, how important it is to build a raft. That just stuck with me. Maybe this is in sixth grade, like you must build a raft. So before this podcast, I researched, what is this raft thing that keeps sticking in my, in my head? So it turns out it's, it's an actual thing. Like there are studies uh, about it and raft stands for reconciliation, affirmation, 
farewell and think destination. So us kids, right? Like fifth grade, sixth grade, before we're, we're teenagers, I was taught in school, like when you're building relationships, like know that it's going to end in a few years right. and to build them with an end in mind, potentially, you know, make sure you don't get hurt, right? Like this, this relationship has an expiration date. Wow. Uh, and here is a nice four-step way of doing it without getting hurt, without hurting other people. Wow. So I don't know how, how deep an effect it had. I mean, clearly I still, still remember this, but this notion of things having expiration dates and knowing that a lot of, a lot of things are transitory in life, or transient in life, they will eventually end. I think that had a, that, that did actually have a more profound impact on me than, than maybe was intended by even by those teachers and, uh, and, and guidance counselors. And you literally had no childhood friend who went with you for, for years on end? Or is there somebody in your life who you've known since that age and continued your growth along with? So from school, there are, there's maybe one or, there are one or two people who were there from the, from the beginning, but they aren't super close friends. I have other childhood friends, uh, one particular one who I've known since, quote unquote, I was born. Of course, I don't remember when right. I was born, <laughs> but there is a big gap. So we were really close, you know, when we were six, seven, eight years old, and then we reconnected uh, when I was 17 years old. So there's still a big chunk of time when we weren't really close, and then we're close now, but there's, there's a big gap there. So if I take a look at that part of my life, maybe going from six to 18. Yeah, that's correct. There's probably, there are zero people, zero friends. So people outside, you know, my, my immediate family who I was close with and then who saw that full journey. Okay. Well, uh, pick it up in any, in any way you like to, to continue like progress through the chronology, um, growing up. Yeah. Pick up where you, where you stop. Yeah. So, so sure. So the reason I was bringing this up, I want to I want to make a small tangential stop at MBTI, the Myers-Briggs personality test. Do you, mm -hmm. do you know this? Do, do you believe in it? Do you, do you think it's like astrology? Is it the, the four letters one? Yeah, yeah, it's the four letters one. Yeah, I've, I've taken it before. Um, I know it. I think I'm not a subscriber to any of these tests, really. When, they, when you look at them up close, you know, especially with me, it's especially the introvert-extrovert um, dichotomy and of course uh, of course they came up with ambivert because to me it doesn't make sense <laughs> of course there's an ambivert because we all are um, but yeah but with me especially like it didn't it never resonated uh, this particular dichotomy because really I can be I can be both of the extremes and and not and you know within a day so I know it's not it's not, there's no way you could, you could really characterize me by calling me any of these two names, but I'm not sure about the other ones. And I, I'd like you to, to just talk about it in, in a way that pertains to your story for sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, I don't want to talk about OpenBTI, just, just one part of it. I'm like you, so I move, a, I bounce a lot between the letters and maybe for the people who don't know, yeah, MBTI is four letters and each of the four letters has two options. So the first is introvert or extrovert. 
the second is, are you sensing or an intuitive person? Right? Like, do you listen to your gut or are you always like collecting data? The third is like, are you thinking or feeling? Uh, and the fourth is, are you judging or, or perceiving? And the MBTI folks say like, you know, you take the test and they give you the four letters and they give you some percentages where they are. But I also like you bounce between a lot of them. And there are all these archetypes. And I've definitely been several different archetypes several times in my life and then doing different roles. But the most interesting of the four things to me is the last one. It's just judging versus perceiving. Mm-hmm. So even as I bounce between the roles, I'm consistently perceiving. I'm a P. I am very rarely become a J. And the J's are the what one of the J roles is called the architect, right? So the J's are the the planners, the ones who, who want to make sure everything exactly the way they want it to be. They don't take a step without having thought it through. And the P's tend to be more like, hey, whatever comes, I'll respond to it. I'll surf. Right, like here, here comes the wave, and uh, I'll just, I'll deal just fine with it. And I've always been, uh, been a, been a P. Um, why am I bringing up this, uh, this J versus versus P thing? Because I think it's closely tied one to this, the sphere of commitment, right? Because anything better could come, and also. Uh, the previous childhood example, right? Everything is transient. People could leave in a few years. That's like a very, very P thing because you never know what life will throw at you next. Right. Uh, I'm an Eastern European Jew. Uh, so kind of through this generational trauma, it's ingrained that you never know what's going to happen next, right? Like the world could turn uh, on its head very, very quickly and you have to be able to to respond to that. Right. I remember my, my grandma said, uh, what's in your head can't be taken away, right? Like that's mm. that's your your real wealth because everything else is could could change when people with, with guns uh, show up at your door. So I've always been this this strong P, and I think going with travel, going back to travel, I think it's it's related as well, right? Because traveling is one, it's a dress rehearsal at, at being super independent especially like a vagabonding kind of travel, which I have done later in my life, which, which we can talk about. And it's always something new. It's always a new scenario you, you get to respond to. That's, that's something very exciting for me. And there's the T.S. Eliot poem, right? Like the whole point of travel is at the very end of it, we'll come back to the place we started and see it with new eyes. I'm totally butchering the quote. Mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> We'll excuse but, but you. <laughs> maybe we'll find it for the show notes. Um, but yeah, this, this classic poem with regard to travel. And I don't want to come back home, right? Like, where, where is home even to look at with new eyes? Uh, maybe the road is, is home. So, yeah, that's the question. Is it possible to, to be addicted to travel? Is there genuine value in travel if you never come back home? Or is it like someone who sharpens their sword forever, only to never use it? Yeah, those are interesting questions. And travel came up in another episode I recorded not as the main subject but I think it's interesting that travel is um, a way for you to examine yourself in a way that opens opens a door to reinvention of yourself um, to re-examination of values of ways of being ways of thinking and I think that 
the world is largely been made better as more and more people in it travel you know um, so just going back to your childhood being a kid who travels around a lot um, I had the same uh, fortunate upbringing that you know I, I went on an airplane quite young in life not not anything crazy um, but it was just something that my family could afford and they took us to Kenya they took us to Europe and just seeing these thing kind of opens your thinking so I think that's definitely the the good side of travel or the bright side of, of travel that you are able to see other people right you basically know how how everyone however different they may be they are they want the same things they have quite the similar aspirations and so on um, so I'd say just important for me to like kind of highlight the bright side of travel opening your mind and it's also the original way for us to get entertainment I think in some way because some person that we know from our village I'm talking like let's say thousands of years right they would go out and see this totally other place and come back with stories um, that could then be exaggerated into myths and that <laughs> but um, but also learn a lot about the world and so on um, yeah so I'm really interested in in hearing your pivot to to the dark side of travel um, first of all I'm the kind of person who now in my life, I'm so settled, like I'm yearning for a home that I own, actually, be it rational or irrational. And travel, like with the years, I think became sort of an ordeal in my mind, for better or for worse, you know? Uh, sometimes I think it's for worse, for sure. Um, but for whatever reason, it's become this kind of ordeal in my mind. And I have appreciation for somebody who can, um, for anyone who can, still travel just take their things and travel i think it takes guts but anyway maybe maybe it's time uh, for me to hear your pivot to the dark side of travel because i'm awfully interested in that sure sure uh so maybe you can start off with what you said about travel as a means of, of learning about yourself when we think of introspection sometimes when i hear the word introspection i imagine like this uh this navel gazing right maybe someone meditating or someone locked in a room and just obsessing about themselves, journaling. So this, uh, yeah, very self-referential and, and very cerebral exercise. It's in your head. Um, and then you do all these things and you try to think about who you are. You, you turn the camera on itself, kind of. But what's exciting about travel as a way of, of exploring yourself is it's not like that, right? You, you learn from experience. You learn about yourself by throwing yourself into a completely unpredictable situation and you'll see what comes out of it. You'll see how you, how you respond. Um, of course, there's dangers with that, but hopefully you do it in a somewhat smart way and you, you limit your, your downside risk. And that to me is a, is a much better and again, much more authentic and honest way of learning about yourself because it's, it's very difficult to lie to yourself that way. Uh, right? That's, when you're that's, just, that's such a good point. Yeah just thinking about yourself then then you can lie but yeah as i said before sharpening a sword versus using the sword so this this is a very exhilarating experience and it it can be addictive right just like i'm sure like some people can get addicted to bungee jumping and skydiving you can be addicted to throwing yourself into into new situations and that, that is the question right like is there value in just learning about yourself and then 
this experiential knowledge that's accumulated, or if I even zoom out a little bit, is there value in knowledge that's accumulated, uh, but not used, mm. right? Like, uh, so imagine someone who, who's addicted to going to school and, you know, gets like eight master's degrees and then never gets a job, never creates anything meaningful, never right. puts it to use. Uh, that, that can be a dark side to, to travel and, and non-commitment, right? Just, uh, just sharpening the ax forever and never chopping a tree. This is also related to, to romantic relationships, right? Like you can, you can always be looking for the next romantic partner in a similar way, at the exhilarating uh, part of, of discovering each other, uh, of getting deeper with a person, also finding out about yourself, uh, but it's just about yourself and more and more vibing with other people and then not committing. I can bring in this other external thing, which, which is called the... Oh my God, I forget what it's called. I think it's called the secretary problem, which is like a really, really, I don't like the term. It's not a, it's a problematic term. I think it's also called the something suitor. Um, yeah, like the lame suitor problem. And, and the question is the following. Should you marry your first love? Should you hire the first secretary? Like uh, how many people should you date? And how do you know when you have found the one in order to maximize your, your chances of, of making the right decision? This right. is putting it mathematically. And there's a mathematical solution to this, apparently. There uh, is. <laughs> which I can show you in a, we can also link in the show notes. If we believe it fully or not, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's another one. But I'll say because I think it's, in, it's interesting. So the mathematic solution, or so it's claimed, is one should identify like how many potential suitors you have, potential mates you mm -hmm. have. Mm -hmm. And you should date 37% of them. <laughs> Oddly specific oh, so number. It, it reminds me of a of a of an internal combustion engine. Now I don't know, just the, just the number reminded me of the thermodynamic law that that you know sets the limit on how much um, energy can be produced from heat. <laughs> but it has no bearing on this. No, this is I think with, <laughs> I think the the number comes with some formula involving E, the constant. I forget what the exact formula is, but we can we can yeah. look it up. But the point is you date 37% of your suitors and then you have a big enough sample size to make a decision and you go after the one that's uh, better than the rest, right? Based on that sample size. Wow. So first of all, I have to say, I, I pity the person who goes by this rule and takes it right. seriously. <laughs> I, mean, I can just imagine the disappointment. Um, yeah, but it, what's interesting about what you just said is quality versus quantity, a question of quality versus quantity too, right? I mean, if sharpening your ax is kind of doing many iterations and kind of learning a lot in one way, but it really does um, exclude any kind of, of in-depth experience, right? So for me, in, in terms of relationships, like I remember that for a long time, I had this model of my grandparents. My grandparents died or my, my grandma died when they were married for 73 years and, um, and have been together for like 82 years, okay? So they died in their mid-90s after having been together since, since they're 14. And I had this model, and I remember being very curious about the kind of depth of a relationship that you get to experience being with someone for so long. And just for me, for the type of personality that I am, I've always been fascinated with, with this kind of qualitative 
exploration of something, which is why I'm very monogamous by, by nature. So the exploration part for me, like being with different partners and, and something like that was never that strong, which I'm grateful for because it, uh, it means there are less chances for venereal diseases, right, to be involved. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's... <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> my mind is wandering today. Um, so it's, it's a quality versus quantity thing that you're, that you're describing. And I guess that it could be connected to your earlier experience about traveling a lot, right? So that's, do you feel like this is the kind of model when you were saying you already knew that there were many friends and none of them you actually got to experience as adults, let's say, um, and, and get to know them as adults maybe, or very few of them. So is yeah, it, think- do you think that's following that model? Maybe, yeah, I think that's very sad. That, that one childhood friend, which I, I described earlier, I am very close with him, and that is a, a deep relationship. Uh, but I think what you're saying is, is exactly right. Like, if you keep traveling and spending a month or two months or even a year in all these different places, it's not going to be the same as spending 80 years in one place or same with same with people. So this question of depth, um, this is a deep dive podcast, right? This is, is, I think very much on point how much new stuff will you get uh by drilling down versus going side to side like they call this uh the t-shaped people t-shaped meaning everyone you know a little bit about everything and then in one uh, particular Mm. domain you can you can go deep okay i I prefer to call myself as a i think they call it paint drip people while you're kind of painting and then you see something and then you go down and look okay, oh, somewhere right. else and it's like there uh, uh it's maybe this whole thing is, is kind of kind of pretentious but the the quote specialization for cockroaches is for cockroaches has always uh, resonated with me like i'd rather be a generalist uh than a specialist and and maybe the reason for that is connected to what, I, what we were talking about before right because what if that area that that domain that you're specializing in like for some external reason becomes obsolete. Right, right. Like you're, you're the expert, uh, I don't know, ca- candle maker, right? And then they know the, the light bulb or yeah. something like this happens. It's, it's very relevant in today's world. Yeah, I mean, it's relevant for me also. We, we stop. I don't want to go through my entire life because maybe that's not exciting to, to listeners, <laughs> but it's exciting, right? Because, uh, irrelevant because, uh, for example, I worked in a book printing press. I managed a book printing press focused specifically on unprinted books um, and some, some magazines also, but, but mostly books, right? And then now I'm a software developer. So this notion of, of type versus bits and will, will one become completely irrelevant is, is exciting to me. And, and I see all the books behind you and there are some books behind me as well. So I, I love books and I don't think that they will go away, but... But for example, printed newspapers are, are dying. They are going away. Right, right. Uh, so it's, it's happening. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking um, to connect it to, to travel, is it that travel, it's interesting because the way we put it so far, obviously there's the, there's the education that comes from seeing many places. But also if you go to these many places, you probably didn't get to experience one place very deeply. Um, and that could be that could be a loss, right? What I was thinking about, can you 
give an example or think of an example where a place becomes obsolete like if not literally obsolete because it's blown off of the earth but um, does a place become obsolete if uh, bad feelings are felt in it or or if some hardships are met there could that be be yeah. thought of as, yeah. as becoming obsolete places become obsolete all the time in, in, in that regard uh, so hungry right my, my I'm originally from Hungary that's That's my home, I guess. But Hungary became obsolete to many people throughout, throughout even the 20th century. So one is, of course, the, the big one is Second World War, right? Like um, it became obsolete to a lot of Jews and other targeted groups of people. Um, and those who were fortunate enough to survive the war, some of them came back. But it's also very difficult, right? I don't envy those people. I and mean, we don't have to make this a history and sociology thing, but... But, you know, when you come back and, and you found your home completely raided and maybe some neighbors will, will bring back the silverware they, they stole from your home mm -hmm. or like the, the blankets, maybe mm -hmm. some, some won't bring it back. back. And, and the swastikas on the walls get painted over with a fresh coat of white paint. But underneath the paint, they're still there. So for some people, I guess the, that place becomes obsolete, regardless of, uh, of, of family ties. Also in 1956, uh, a lot of people emigrated from Hungary. 1956 was uh, the year of the revolution versus the Soviets in, in Hungary. Uh, and a good chunk of people emigrated from Hungary in 56. So then Hungary became, yeah, it became obsolete for them, I guess. So yeah, if, if you're like this, if you have all your eggs in one basket, and we can talk about risk also. I think this whole, this discussion of depth versus breadth is also tied to risk. But yeah, if you had all your eggs in one basket and all you speak is Hungarian and then you can no longer live in Hungary because of whatever reason and you're not prepared for that adjustment, that, that, I can, that can put you in a very tough situation, which I do not want to be in. Right. Yeah, that's clear. And, and same here. Like today when I see kids in Israel who are monolingual, just speaking Hebrew, which is the language spoken by at most, uh, you know, 9 million people or something in this um, island country, technically not an island, but um, <laughs> an island country, basically. And I see them not learning English or Chinese, you know, and it basically it's, a, I, I fear for their life, really, I am. And, and also every Israeli likes to have a second passport. That's another thing, right? So that's, that's the same um, intergenerational trauma that you're, talking about but if we are going to take it to some other instances like other things that would make you um jump ship in one place and and move to another like in your experience what could these be i mean we haven't gotten to the part where you're jumping between places so i don't know if you want to mention some of the stops just so we understand how many places you've moved through over the years sure yeah I'm happy to talk, but let's talk about that. Let's talk about the, the bounces between, between moves. So one, even as a kid, kid meaning under 18, my family moved a lot in Hungary. I think once uh, my mom added up and I think we moved like 12 times until I was 18. Um, so that's a, that's a lot of, of smaller moves, but that was, that was outside of my control. That was when I was a kid. So at 18, I went to the US. I went to school in, in, Wellesley, Massachusetts, a place called Babson College. 
So there I lived for four years, but obviously in different dorms, right? So that's one move per year to different dorms. I also spent a semester in Paris in a failed attempt to, to learn French and a successful attempt to learn more about French culture. And after, yeah, maybe I will do this quick resume thing and mention the job with the location as well, just to get a sense of the hops yeah. between jobs and then colleges. Okay, so after college, I went back to Hungary um, and I was a consultant for, for two years. So basically it's a management consulting job for a, a McKinsey spinoff. And in those two years, lived in two different places, but with what closely related to family. So like in a multi-generational home. So with my mom, but also not with my mom. My parents are also separated and, and divorced when I was young. Maybe that's relevant somehow. We can get back to that. Uh, so that was two years. And after that, went back to the US for my graduate degree. So that's another two years I lived in Jersey City. After Jersey City, I moved down to Florida, um, started work at a medical device robotic surgery company. And while I was in Florida, I lived in Fort Lauderdale, then Miami. Then the company got acquired by a Fortune 500 med device company in New Jersey. So then I moved back up to New Jersey, lived there for two years. Then I moved back to Florida where I started my own company called Snapatizer, which was an iOS application to help people find food. So that was living in Florida again. And after that, I moved to Hungary to a small city called Yomandrud, where the book printing company was, which I managed for, uh, for two years, living there. Very different uh, circumstances for, for those two years. Following that, I, I spent six months traveling the world. And we can talk about that block afterwards. Visited a whole bunch of countries. After which, I went back to Boston during COVID, stay with family for a while, and then move down to North Carolina, which is where I am right now. So the, the quick summary is that no real place for longer than two years, no same job for longer than three years, but most of them are like one to two years. Right. Yeah. So I'm looking to do something that's twofold here. So first, um, if you can find a pattern between a pattern of, of the triggers that kind of make you pack your stuff and, and go away. That would be fascinating to, <laughs> to look at. And also, um, and also maybe more explicitly state the, the dark part of, of travel. Why, why is it dark after all? Okay, you did what you wanted. You went all these places. You've had all these experiences. So um, ostensibly, this is, this is not dark yet. So... Uh, but let's start with the with the trigger. What makes you hop from one place to another? The, the trigger for these was always I'm always jumping towards something. So in these cases, with, with one exception, uh, I was always I was jumping towards something towards the opportunity. Uh, so even in jobs, I was trying to learn a new skill or go to Miami because there's more excitement there, there there's more life there. So there's an opportunity um, where it's possible to, to make the change for the, for the better and then taking that. So if we can do one small tangent, we can come back. We can also come back to the, the dark sure. side after this. We talked about risk before, and I think this is closely tied. I want to make a, a financial analogy. 
of owning a stock versus owning an option in a stock. So if you own a stock, then depending, you know, if the stock's value goes up and down, like your own value or your, your, your portfolio also goes up and down. Whereas if you have an option in a stock, then the more volatile the stock is, the actually the value of the option goes up, right? Because you can exercise the option and then convert it into a stock if it's good. But if it's bad, then you don't have to, you're not forced to, you just have the option. So maybe the way I'm looking at these bounces is I was exercising options. So the way I've been living my life in a lot of ways is trying to maximize the number of options that I have. Options mm -hmm. in careers, mates, locations, just, just in general options, and then exercising an option when it made sense. Maybe that's one way of looking at it, um, which is, I think, a very rational way of doing things, but also potentially cold. And, and if you look at partners as options, then that's not very ethical for sure. Uh, but, but I think within career and those scenarios, it's, it's less, uh, less problematic. So yeah, I was exercising an option. So I learned how to code while on the job and then took the option later and then made that a, a, a main, uh, main career. What's the dark side in all of this? So the dark side is, are you ever going to settle down? Right? Like, um, career wise, I don't think it's that bad if you don't. Like I th think today it's totally acceptable to change jobs every two or three years. Uh, it's becoming rare where someone has the same job for 10 years. Slightly more problematic with location, right? If you keep changing the place you live every two years, how are you going to make long-lasting friendships? How are you going to become a responsible member of the local community? Right. Uh, which I would say is, is important and overlooked and no one's doing it these days or very few people are doing it these days. And maybe that's that's one potential source of joy that we're not taking advantage of. Like I'm not doing this either as much as I should. And definitely with partners, right? If you, if you keep changing your, your romantic partner every two or three years, how are you going to start a family? How are you going to have meaning? How are you going to form the kind of deep relationship which, which you would be looking for? And then travel-wise, if you're never happy in the place you are, if you always have to travel, if you're never feel comfortable enough to throw down those roots, which you have. And you say you're a little bit of jealous of me because I'm able to just pack up my stuff and then go travel. But maybe it's okay to have that luggage, to have those roots, right? Maybe that's the goal ultimately, like, because that will lead to happiness. Um, yeah, if you don't do that, then then, then I think it's, it's potentially a, a superficial life. It's you're chasing, you're not necessarily chasing things which are valuable. And then we can have a, another discussion on what's value and what's what's uh what's good yeah there's one more quote which i want to throw in, which is which was the graduation quote at nyu it's like if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go together mm -hmm. so there's all this traveling right it's like going fast go alone uh having fun so there's definitely a, a dark side to that yeah that that makes total sense so basically if i'm to distill kind of your account of of the darkness of of travel of that side it's basically that um you lose any sort of sight of of real satisfaction and you kind of maybe lose touch with what satisfaction even is because 
you just assume there's a pattern of, of going from one place to another. It's basically FOMO, right? That's, that's fair to say that it's a fear of missing out, right? And I think that maybe there's a, there's a danger for us to lose sight of what is actually satisfaction and what are the kind of good things that, that come after one wave because after the initial exhilaration in a relationship, in a relationship with the location, in a relationship with a job, obviously there's going to be a dip, um, but there are going to be other highs which, we, which are different from the highs we've had. So I think in changing a lot, that's still repetitive in some sense, correct? Changing a lot is definitely repetitive, but so you're saying you're not actually changing. So you're, you're, you're changing the, the small things, but you're not changing meaningfully. You're actually not. Right, right. Well, I'm thinking, and when I said I'm, I'm jealous of you, yeah, I, I think both of us and, and everyone should look at the, at the middle path, right? Like I'm pretty happy with the way I am, but I recognize that maybe I should travel more because I haven't been on an airplane since like 2016. And um, yeah, maybe I should make an effort to, to get out more and do that and we want a middle path like we also don't want to be the the ultimate provincial character who's never left his own county right or village or anything like that um well, why not by the way um well like i said that, it, that character is happy yeah yeah i'm just i'm just thinking about the, the bright side of travel that we mentioned before and the way it opens up your mind the way it um, primes us to actually try and establish a more global community rather than become xenophobes in your own village or something like that, you know, a progress, if it's going to make you a bit more creative, seeing how other people think about things and not just the traditional way that you've inherited from your ancestors over thousands of years in the same place. Um, so those Here's are the question. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry. The, do you think travel is enough to do once like a college degree? You get your travel degree, you see the world once for, I don't know, nine months or however much months you see it, you open your mind. Is it a skill set which you just do once and then you're kind of good for life? Or, or is it something you have to refresh and you have to travel every five, ten, however many years and, and reopen your mind because it will go back closed? Yeah, so that's that's fascinating. Most Israelis go after their army service for at least a year, like at least six months, let's say. And I went for two and a half years to live in a homestead in the middle of Georgia, right in the forest. Um, and it's interesting because, as I mentioned in another episode I did with with Rick Benger, um, the metaphor we use for for taking a psychedelic compound is a trip, right? You go on yeah. a trip, and and the question you just asked really applies also to, to that. And my answer is, it depends. I mean, I think that uh, a travel or a psychedelic trip could be so overwhelming in real time that you actually need decades to, to integrate them, right? I think it's a matter of integration because there's the experience, there's what you get on the road. Um, you know, there's the kind of deities you come face to face with in your, uh, on, your, on your psychedelic trip. And, and if you're traveling, we'll just stick to traveling here. But you, you have all the experiences. You see these amazing things, right? Maybe you lived in Israel and you go to India and you see how people live on the street there. And you learn about that 
Um, and it's not just India, of course, but it's just my, my reference is to that because I'm Israeli and so many Israelis go there. Um, but anyway, you see these things in real time. You get impressed by them. You, get, you could get overwhelmed by them. And then you integrate. Okay? And this integration could take a long time where you actually feel like you need to stay in one place to do this integration. Um, if you don't do the integration, I think if you move on, um, this is something I saw with people who are treating a lot of things as, as recreational. Like mm -hmm. you, can, you can come with the attitude of doing something recreationally, which is kind of like just for the experience, you're going to check the pulse like as, as for as long, for the time you're in there doing the experience is like, oh yeah, that's fine. That's beautiful. I'm seeing this thing, seeing that and never reflect on it and move on to your next travel, right? Or you could actually go to a place, journal, right? So we have some snippets from your journey and some thoughts and all that and go back home and reflect on it and integrate it in your life. And these are just two modes of things. Um, again, I was always the kind of person who, who'd rather go on a long travel and integrate it and really take it in and reflect on it. Same with psychedelics that I took. I didn't do as many um, as some people did, but when I did, I tried to get the maximum out of it, which would mean I would take a large dose. And I don't know, you know what? It's really hard for me to sit here and, and tell you which is right, because I recognize I'm biased towards being the type of person who goes for the, for the deep dives, right? Um, and it's interesting to think about. I don't know, but it does sound like whatever you're going to do, there's going to be some part of the, that, that actually yearns to, to experience the other way of doing things, right? Yes, for sure. The, the grass is always greener on the other plane. Yeah. Um, I think you make, a, make a, a, an excellent point about integration and about this recreational travel, like recreational drug use. This is a, a really funny way of, of looking at it. Uh, and it's trying to, I'm like bringing out the analogy, right? Like drug use has like short-term negative consequences usually, and mm -hmm. like will oftentimes have positive long-term consequences, whether that's, uh, you know, pharmaceutical drug or something that has been scheduled today, not necessarily scheduled tomorrow. I wonder if travel has something similar, right? Like you can also start talking about sustainable travel and stuff. And like, uh, if you have all these FOMO tourists, these recreational folks coming in and then will that have a negative impact on the community? Even if it does bring in money, for example, right? For the local community, it, it could have other negative effects. But that's not, just going back to the self. If you're always FOMO traveling, think it's recreational travel without properly integrating it, then is the ax truly sharpened? Are you even sharpening the ax? Right, right. Or, or In some it... sense, some aspect of it. I mean, if you become more like a, you know, like a, a cat that lands on its feet, no matter which way it's thrown, right? You just, you develop the skills of coming to a new place and maybe a new city is for you something that's easier to, to adapt to because you kind of understand maybe interactions and, and what kind of places are, make sense to go to and how to meet people. Um, you become savvy in some sense but yeah obviously you're you're giving up on on other skills i do think again but this is this is just me but to me there's this 
interesting quality to reinventing yourself. And I think that anything you'll do repetitively or not at all is, is not progress. So, No, I think some repetition is okay. Repetition is how you train. And I think, I think the solution to this, by the way, how can you keep traveling, uh, but also do it in a meaningful way? Mm-hmm. I think the proper way of doing it is proper, quote-unquote, like, like one way of doing it that could potentially solve all of this. I'm not saying this is the, the only proper <laughs> way. Uh, would be one, like, to stay at least a meaningful amount of time. So probably like a month at least. And also maybe pick a few spots that you really like and keep going back to them. So as opposed to spending one month in a completely new place, like uh, have four or five places in the world. And that way, when you go back, it's not a completely fresh start. It's still different. It still provides that high from getting out of, of daily life, but you're not starting from zero. Maybe you have some existing relationships. Also, when you leave, you're not abandoning it completely. You don't have to build a raft and like cut off the other person altogether. And like that relationship is now severed. But with, with each recurring trip, even though it's short, you are building towards something. You are maybe going a little bit deeper. Right. So that's the, that's the kid who comes back to like summer camp every year and there's the experiences there and, and, and something like that. Um, I want to ask you, if, when you say that travel is like something you can get addicted to, do you mean it literally affecting like the, the reward systems in the brain, the rush? And if so, does it like any other addiction actually at some point not give the, the full effect anymore because there's a sort of uh, diminishing returns effect? Yeah, 100%. I, definitely. I, I think that's right. Um, especially if you do like the, the short travel um, mm-hmm. and just go to a place for like three days and you do that serially. Um, yeah, by the fourth time, like you're not going to really put yourself out there. Like you said, you'll just check the box, maybe do really touristy things, maybe not even do touristy things. But I think to really get to know a place and, and, and to get value out of travel, you have to put an emotional investment into it. And yeah, I don't think it will have the same, you would get the same out of it, right? So maybe it's psychedelics, it's a similar story, right? So if you do it lots of times without putting in the emotional work in a short amount of time, then you will not get the same same value out of it. Right. Like, and what I do think, you think? Yeah, I mean, my experience with that is the people that I knew that were kind of more recreational users of drugs with psychedelics, I mean... I think just as in uh, Fight Club, right? Fight Club is going around the country after a while. It's like, you don't know where you are. You wake up at LAX, you, you land in this other um, PDX, whatever. You start losing track, you start losing yourself, right? I think it's the same with drugs. I mean, people who just do it recreationally and don't think about it, if they are primed to lose themselves, then this is what's going to, to bring them there. To a, sometimes you can even lose touch with, with who you are right? Um, something I'm really interested in, in exploring with you is, is the notion, I've always had the notion that our lives could not be very significant in the end, um, but whatever it is I'm going through, if I manage to tell my story to someone and benefit them in some way, like report back from the frontier or whatever, however you want to call it, like the... Um, yeah. And so that, that kind of makes it worth it and 
that's that's like a way for me to even if I'm thinking about all the things that I kind of uh, I'm sorry that I did or something like that or mistakes you know if I can transform it into something educational well that would actually redeem the whole experience from being deemed a bad experience right and I, I wonder if you if you journaled if you ever went um, back if you kind of did that or if you intend to integrate all of this into some sort of, of lesson because look we also need the people who are who are travelers and see the world and all that we other communities have learned so much from the visitors from other communities and i think that in that if it's right now considered a dark part of travel to to overdo travel or something like that well a redeeming um, strategy could be to at least transform it into something educational and i'm interested to to hear from you if there's anything you can share that that only someone who has traveled all these places and lived the kind of life that you have so far um, will be able will be able to tell you know <laughs> yeah that's i i i kind of want to refuse that question right like uh yeah tell me something that only you and only someone who has done this would be able to say is a is a it's it's a very loaded question it's like going to a designer and be like here Give me something that no one has ever designed before <laughs> that, that only you can design. So yeah, I'm gonna refuse that part a little bit. But but journaling, I definitely <laughs> I definitely see the need for it. And and I've been failing in that regard. Like, right? I want to be writing more. I love the idea of writing. I love reading my old writing. Um, but I have difficulty actually doing it. I've been, yeah. So when I was younger, I was doing a lot more of it, and I've recently started doing it again. And I've journaled while I traveled, so I did write a little bit, but rereading it again, it was not as rich and as meaningful as as I would like. So I know what you're looking for. You actually want like personal story, like you, because so we don't talk in abstractions, but we can tie it back together to uh, to to my story. Oh, I'm not worried. It's it's going well. But yeah, whatever, um, whatever fits <laughs> you. Yeah. So my. Uh, in the six months travel I talked about, it was kind of a backpacking journey that started off in Japan, then Vietnam, then Thailand, then, uh, then Hong Kong, China, and then Israel. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe because of this, the FOMO nature, the recreational nature, I think the quality of my experiences or the depth and richness of my experiences, uh, I think went down over time. It wasn't a straight line. It was up and down a little bit. But um, I think with every single step of the journey that I took, I got a little bit less out of it because maybe of the lack of integration and then going back home. So the first part, Japan was, was truly amazing. And I really enjoyed it. And I had lots of small adventures, even though it started off in an obsessive way. And this is interesting. I tried to pick up a new skill. Maybe this is part of the P, part of like the whole the paint drying thing as well. So the thing I became obsessed about in Japan fairly early on was Mahjong, Richi Mahjong, which I learned during an earlier trip to China in a random meetup, someone taught me Chinese Mahjong. Uh, and then I downloaded a few apps and I found that there's a Japanese variant called Richi Mahjong. And while I was in Japan, I found out that there are these actual parlors, Mahjong parlors, where, where people go and they, they play. Um, 
And I was like, okay, I have to experience this. I just wanted to see, at first, I wanted to see what it's like. And I'm not sure you can tell, but I have a very addictive personality. So like gambling and me have, have never been strangers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and Mahjong is a game that you can play for money as well. But I didn't necessarily fully understand that at the time. The process of getting into a Mahjong parlor as a gaijin was, mm-hmm. was not easy. I think in Tokyo, I visited eight different parlors. Uh, is it legal? Is it legal? Oh, it's, it's very legal. All this gambling stuff okay. is legal. So oh, okay. like, I'm sure you've heard of the pachinko clubs and pachinko parlors in Japan. No. So pachinko is uh, it's like the Japanese version of slot machines. Okay. It's, it's not as silly as slot machines. There's supposedly a little bit of skill involved, but it's, it's machines. You push buttons. There are flashy lights. There's lots of jangling music. And at the end, you, your expected value is negative. And, and you're playing against a house. So that's the pachinko parlors. And there's a whole depth to that side of the world as well, especially with lower class, lower middle class Japanese people um, who have like, 14-hour workdays, make a little bit of money, and then they give it all back in the pachinko parlor. So that, that whole pachinko is like another depth, which I don't know enough about, but it's, it's kind of exciting and there have been books written about it. So mahjong is not pachinko. Mahjong is uh, played with people, but they're also these parlors. I just wanted to experience it. It took, they don't like having gaijin people there. Also, I didn't speak Japanese. Right. So I'm white. I don't speak Japanese. I barely know the rules of the game, although I've been beating the apps. But of course, the apps are not as good as the people playing in real life. But I finally talked myself into it, found this one person who was really helpful. And he let me sign up, filled out the completely Japanese form. And I got a plastic card. And once you got a plastic card, you're okay to go in the parlor. So talking about addiction and stuff and dark side, this very mysterious thing, very, very difficult to get into, right? It took several days and eight attempts I finally got the card. I finally went into a parlor and I went into a section which was not gambling. You pay an hourly rate, but you're not paying for money. Right. You're just playing for fun. And, and this is the biggest curse when it comes to any sort of gambling is I won my first game. So I was playing against Japanese and I beat them the very first time I, I sat down. And that is the absolute worst thing that can happen to you in, in any gambling situation. So small tangent, I have a really close friend in Hungary and I taught him poker, uh, Holden, yeah. which he really enjoyed. And he competed in the Budapest Open, which was the biggest uh, poker tournament in Hungary at the time. And he came in second nice, and won some money. And as a result of this, like the next four years of his life were entirely down the drain where he oh, got himself not, into not like nice. t- tons of debt and just completely like drove his life to rock bottom uh, oh, no. because of a gambling addiction. Because of that thing, right? The initial win, like that yeah. sets unreasonable expectations that it makes you think like, hey, I know what I'm doing. And then it's just like all the way down that like can spiral from there. But anyway, going back to Mahjong, I won my first game. I was like, woohoo, yes, Tamash is awesome. And then I proceeded for the next couple of weeks to just go play Mahjong all the time for money in these smoky parlors. Um, I don't know. I really enjoyed it, but it was also obsessive, probably not healthy behavior. But I got out learning, uh, learning Mahjong. And then I, I, I also 
did a bunch of other stuff in 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 Japan that's not necessarily dark. That was actually really good things. Um, <laughs> but I'm not sure you want to hear my travel stories. I, I can tell you travel stories if you like, but I'm not sure that's that's what you want to hear. I can. Let's, that's cool. But sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm I'm saying I'm saying th these are fascinating. I I could hear them all day. Um, I'm just thinking like we're past the hour mark. Um, I, I want us to, to think together maybe, or you tell me what you think about how to, how to transform the dark, like going forward, talking about the dark side of travel, how do we transform it into something that's more balanced? I mean, now that we've established that, that it's an addiction, um, you say it's 100% an addiction. It can be addictive, right? Or it can be, or it can be, right? Um, in terms of, of kind of balancing it back, that's tricky when I think about it because what, are you just now going to tell yourself like, okay, for the next 10 years, I'm not moving anymore, no matter the circumstances where I live or, or anything like that. Um, rather, I think there needs to be maybe just a different criterion or a better awareness of the triggers, right? Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe more thought put into the, into the moves um, and just a kind of general slowing down of the of the process of actually coming to a decision, packing your things and, and leaving. So I don't know how 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 do you think you you're gonna go with it going forward? If if it's in fact something that bothers you, like the, the frequency with which you travel going forward, what are some of the things that could be considered as negating the, the, the current effect? So I think the short-term travel can be addictive. Serial dating can definitely be addictive and, and unhealthy as well. Like lots of short-term dating, the opposite of, of kind of what you're doing. The moves, I don't think they're necessarily bad. So the moves I think is an iterative process and I'm trying to hone in. Same with the career changes. I don't see it as being super dark. It's just points and hopefully with, after a while, we'll, we'll zone in on, uh, on something closer. But one, I think being aware of this, so like this discussion was very helpful for me because I will keep it in mind before I make these, these bigger decisions. One mental model which I will use is, especially we're talking about iterating and optimizing, mm -hmm. is this notion of uh, local maximums and minimums versus global maximums and minimums. So the point is like, maybe this is a dip after a year and a half, but there's going to be a high three years down the road. So mm -hmm. you should not run away just because of the small dip coming up because the big high could be there afterwards. So it's worth persevering. Don't let the local maximums and minimums phase you, like keep the, the big picture um, in mind. And when it comes to the darker stuff, where it's, whether it's travel and then dating, I think it's being upfront with intentions and following through with intentions. So going to travel with a place uh, of collecting new experiences, if, if my intention is part of it is sharing with other people, then yes, making it a point harder, a more important point to journal because just collecting the experience if it's not going to be recorded is not valuable. So it's okay to forego accumulating a 10th experience if the first nine have not been journaled yet because. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one. And the second with, uh, with dating as well, right? Like going into relationships more honest and even potentially going into less relationships uh, if I know it's going to be just a formal kind of thing which is, uh, that's another way of doing it. 
it's hard. What do you think? What What do you think the solution is? <laughs> well, one thought I had was, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about the solution, and I'm thinking about just in general. Uh, since we established that it it can be something that uh, could be as serious as an addiction, then obviously. Um, there needs to be some sort of deep change in the reward systems, and um, that's probably going to entail doing meditation or um, guided um, psychedelic work, I guess, or anything, something that could reach deep into our reptilian brains. And yeah, but one one interesting thought I had is that in other parts of my life, I think it's it's not just travel, like let's Let's make it clear that for each of us, there are these aspects of life that where we are not probably sticking long enough to see kind of the benefits of going through a barrier, of breaking through. And for me, it's been, for example, grit, right? Like starting things. I would, I would start a lot of things, but finish very few. And just now doing this podcast with you, it's, in, it's an interesting insight that I had. So right now this, I'm doing the best thing that I could think of. I love having these conversations and learning from you and from other guests and to especially have the added value of knowing that I have all these conversations that I made where it's kind of this like by now thing that I'm immersed in with all these different conversations that are amazing and they correspond with one another in strange ways um, to make new connections. That's the thing I love the most, and it's very important for me to also share it with others in the hope and belief that they are going to benefit from it. And I noticed that this is so salient for me, the feeling of wanting to produce this podcast and make it, that I'm even willing to learn new things like building a website and um, editing using a, a program, right? Like a mixing, uh, a mixer or, or an editing program. And... These are the type of things that the things that I actually did not have an idea that I, that I would have to know. And they are not things that I wanted to learn. I did not want to build a website. Just approaching it is not something that's enjoyable for me. It hasn't been enjoyable for the first time. But now that I understand that it's necessary for me to, uh, to do this, to bring to fruition the whole big project, then I'm sensing something very interesting, which is not pure pleasure, but it's, I am motivated to do it and I am motivated to learn from it. And when I do learn from it, I feel really good that I have learned it and added a skill mm -hmm. to myself. And I just think that for all of us in, in any field, I think it's really important to not shy away from the things that are not pleasurable you know oh no but it's the other problem i have that adding that new mm -hmm. skill is extremely pleasurable and addictive i've been doing that stuff like you can talk about this but i'm a serial learner but like a self-taught programmer and all this stuff i love gaining that extra plus it's great it's yeah awesome high even without <laughs> the question it's really interesting it's the opposite problem right like i don't have a master podcast to put it all into service to that's going to have value and it's going to exist and, and and outlast it but i love i love coming up with a new skill and going through a learning curve and going through i suck at this okay wow i just made something like i'm actually good at the skill 
like with the games, like with Mahjong, like subheaded nine actually beating Japanese people or chess or any other these other skills which I yeah. I like so so that's that's the the X metaphor, right? Because it feels like right now for me with the podcast, it feels that I'm chopping down a tree. Yeah. And I'm sharpening the axe when it needs it. If I find that it's too blunt, I go and sharpen it and hit at the tree again, right? Um, and it could be that in other areas, I'm just sharpening it to, to no particular purpose. Um, so I guess it's, it's kind of good to have the, the long-term plan, the goal, basically the goal. Um, yeah, which for me in, in many ways, it's very important and it, it took me a while. I think, I think that this goal is also touches on the, on the meaning crisis that a lot of people feel, mm -hmm. right? What is the meaning crisis? If not uh, a feeling of futility and, and not seeing the point of it all. So I think we should all be operating with a, with a goal in mind. Um, not necessarily a goal that you can, you can ever put a check mark on and, and forget about it. Even if it's something that's actually ongoing, like um, being well, living well, enjoying well-being or something like that. But yeah, it's interesting. I think and this, it, it could serve as an anchor to which all the other stations are connected on the way, right? So wouldn't it feel even better if you learned a skill that actually allows you to do to achieve something that you, you know, you want to achieve. Yes, for sure. Maybe this can be the next conversation. And I like the conversation about finding the goal. Yes, that's, uh, yeah, we will have it. In fact, <laughs> we will have it. Um, nice, Tamash. Uh, thank you so much for doing this with me. And please, do, do you have anything else to add that I missed or any insight connected with with travel or about your uh, thoughts about the future with regards to travel? No, yeah, I think, I think this was awesome. We covered a lot of topics um, more than just travel. And I just want to really thank you for inviting me here, for thinking of me. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. So, of course. Appreciate um, it. Sure. It's my pleasure. Would you like people to, to follow you on any platform or see what you're doing or anything like that? I mean, if people are masochistic enough, then they can see what I'm doing on Twitter with at underscore Tamash, that's T-A-M-A-S. But I'm not here to plug any product or anything like that. I just enjoyed the conversation. Nice. Thank you so much again, Tamash. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.